Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell of Bigelow LLC, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Private Enterprise Value. Our website is privateenterprisevalue.com, where you can subscribe, find information on this podcast, and related links and information. Our email address is feedback at privateenterprisevalue.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Bigelow LLC's website is bigelowllc.com, where we freely share immediately useful information to entrepreneur owner managers who want to build their enterprise value for a capital gain someday. How is it that some private enterprises successfully transition through evolutions and revolutions in leadership, management, even ownership? Some end up with terrific new majority owners, the entrepreneur owner managers moving gracefully into the next interesting and rewarding chapter of their lives, surrounded by friends, their positive legacy assured, their independence powered by the fortune just realized, while others' outcomes look more like a train wreck. Is it merely luck, or is it more than that? We think it's more than luck. Successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues. Deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience to free our personal and professional entrepreneurial potential. In this series of podcasts, I interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur-owner managers who are high performers, maybe even peak performers, in their niche domains. We look for patterns of connectedness across these domains. My approach to learning in these podcasts is to break down artificial boundaries between the personal, professional, the technical and psychological, and the theoretical versus practical to amplify our potential growth in learning, growing, giving. Today is November 15th, 2017, and I'm thrilled to be here to interview my guest, Allison Hooper, in her farmhouse on the end of a dirt road in Vermont. Allison is the co-founder and until recently co-CEO of Vermont Creamery, the country's leading artisanal maker of fresh and aged goat cheeses, cultured butter, and fresh dairy from its creamery in Websterville, Vermont. After 30 years of ownership by Allison, her business partner Bob Reese, and a handful of loyal private investors, Vermont Creamery was acquired about six months ago by farmer-owned cooperative Landa Lakes. I had the fun of digging into some of Allison's inspirations, motivations, successes, even disappointments, but most of all wisdom in this hour-long podcast. Hey, so Allison, first of all, I want to welcome you to Private Enterprise Value. Thank you. And thank you for so much for engaging with us here this morning. And I thought maybe we could start by just hearkening back on how you and I got to know each other and thinking about your last, what, 30 years? Yeah. As an entrepreneur? 33, to be exact. 33, okay. Yeah. And um, maybe you could just uh, sort of stare at the ceiling with me for a second and say, so if you think back on those years, and if you could use just a couple of nouns to describe, what would you describe what you do or what you did? Well, let's see. So when we started, when Bob and I started Vermont Creamery, I was 24, and I had been in France uh, as a student working on a farm during the summer between semesters, where I was absolutely smitten with the activity of working with animals, making cheese, making butter, and of course eating all that great food in France, and really um, experiencing the ritual of eating um, as part of their culture. And uh, being infected with that, I wandered to Vermont and uh, thinking that um, this would be a cheese-friendly place. Uh, my grandmother lived in Barnard, Vermont, and we visited as kids, so we had a relationship with the state. And um, it was considered a dairy state, lots of cows, very pastoral, very much like the farm in France. So um, we, I set out with that quest to just sort of wandered up, talked to a, a county agent here who sent me someplace else who, you know, just connecting the dots little by little. 
Um, not with a business plan, a business in mind, but with a notion that this would be a place that I would work and live. So, so if you th think about those couple of words to describe what you do, did you think of yourself as a, um, an entrepreneur? Did you think of yourself as like a cheese maker? Did you, how did you think of yourself? Yeah, I thought of myself as a cheese maker, really? an accidental yeah. cheese maker, knew just <laughs> enough to be dangerous. Um, yeah, not an entrepreneur, not thinking in terms of a business idea that would grow and generate revenue and profit and, you know, thinking about that right. really only with the idea that this is what I liked to do. I was passionate about the product and I really wanted to share it with other people. It was kind of as simple as that. I felt if I love this, you will too. And so is, if you think back to maybe when you were in, I think you said you were between semesters at college yeah. when you went, and went to France, is that what you thought you might do when you were in school? No. Tell me about that. Well, Gosh, in school, I went to a liberal arts college, Connecticut College. I was a European history major. I really had very little, uh, if you will, vocational training uh, uh, for a career. Yeah. And I will say, though, that my classmates, and I remember this very clearly, this was 1981 when I graduated. My classmates were all headed to Wall Street. Yeah. Um, in investment banking, going to professional school, I couldn't go in the other direction fast enough. Right. I just didn't see myself in that environment. I grew up in New Jersey, about an hour west of Manhattan, loved the city, loved going there, but just couldn't see myself getting into that, um, well, that career. So, um, so in some ways, what I'm decoding from you is that like, Doing, making, being, becoming a cheesemaker in Vermont mm -hmm. uh, in nineteen, in the early nineteen eighties, mm -hmm. uh, was a bit of a creative expression for you. Oh yeah, it was a creative ex expression. I think it was also maybe a rejection of yes. that sort of traditional or what was expected. Yes. Um, nothing was expected of me by my parents. They were not disappointed. They were intrigued, uh, and of course when. I would tell people for years that I was a cheesemaker. That was a little disarming. Yeah. <laughs> um, they kind of said, oh, almost like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, if you went to a college reunion, you'd think you'd see that. Don't talk to Allison. She's making cheese, you know. <laughs> um, and, of course, the, the, how that has so changed over the last three decades. Now, if you're a, a producer of artisan food, you're you're a rock star. Right. But it absolutely was not the case in the early days. So, so you mentioned your parents and their expectations. Um, were your parents entrepreneurs? No, my dad was a doctor. He had a private practice, um, an internist. Yeah. Um, and my brother was an entrepreneur. Both my brothers were. They had their own businesses. So um, we kind of that was, I guess, in our DNA. What do you think it was about your your upbringing, your growing up that allowed you to sort of strike out in that way, sort of in a, I would say in 19, in the early 1980s, kind of a countercultural way, right? Sure. Absolutely. I, um, our parents were liberal. They were uh, permissive in terms of their expectations of us. They wanted us to be happy. My brother, who's but a year older than I was, he started his business at age 19. He was a arborist and he started a tree um you know somebody who takes care of all your trees yes um and because he loved it and and he was quite successful over the years so um there wasn't any uh, sort of set um path in our family so you're you you mentioned your your parents and your father and your brothers um you went to school in, in New Jersey? Yeah. And did you enjoy school? Uh, not particularly. <laughs> I was, because? Well, it just, I, I you know, you, you could diagnose it with all kinds of things today, but um, I was a good enough student. 
you know, I did what I needed to do, um, but I never got excited about school. Uh, I was terrible at math and and you know physics and all those things. Organic chemistry scared me to death. And of course, when you start making cheese, some of those things start to make sense. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was never one to love being in school. So, do you think there's like aspects of your life growing up? going to school and I, I get totally what you're saying about um, sort of formal education. You think there's aspects of that that you were trying to fix through your work? Well, I like doing things with my hands. Um, I loved to cook. Um, I loved to um, work outside. I loved to garden, you know, and I always did. My mother was an amazing gardener. Um, and so, um, these were working on a farm and working with animals, haying, making cheese, going to farmers markets. Um, were all it was it was busy. There was a lot of work, and it was always very gratifying for me to do those things day in and day out. I always found it very satisfying. I didn't really feel like there was more, but of course. You got to remember, I was nineteen. Sure. You know, I you yeah. have to think about what rolls around in a nineteen-year-old's head. When you were nineteen, or when you were eighteen, or twenty-one, did you have a particular person or people who were really important in your life, who were mentors to you, or important influencers? Oh gosh, um, my parents were great mentors to me, uh, and. Um, I'd have to think about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I can't think, I can't think of who besides them. We were very close. So are your parents still with us? No. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I just lost my parents recently too. So that's something to get used to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Let me, let me ask you this as opposed to a mentor for you that top of mind, no right answer. Who's like the most successful entrepreneur you can think of? Top of mind. Well, um, somebody that I have admired recently. Uh, so when you say top of mind, yes, um, a, a Vermonter here named Rick Cabot. Um, he owns a business a brand called Darn Tough, and it's a sock manufacturing company in Northfield, Vermont, um, multi-generational business. He took it over from his dad um, when, you know, textiles were all moving overseas. Right. Clothing production was moving overseas, and they were really on the outs. And um, he turned it around, created um, a very positive culture, really dug deep into the insights of his customers, of consumers for those products, really set himself apart with a beautiful brand. And you got to love that name. I mean, yeah. darn tough. It just <laughs> all works. And I've watched this company just soar. And it's very... Um, it's very inspiring. Do you think that the characteristics that you're describing in Rick and that I see in you, do you think those characteristics are sort of genetic or are they learnable, teachable? Wow. Um, I think a lot of it is genetic. And is that how it was for you? That Absolutely. It, yeah. Because it's not conscious. You're doing it. Um, it's absolutely intuitive. Um, and I would say that about the way in which we ran our business, how we sh would show up every day, is um, not calculated. It's not something that you read in a book. You can read a lot of things in a book. Um, it's really a, a reflection of ourselves, of who we are. So, um, and I think I have noticed that after having sold the business, you know, that there's different style of leadership than ours and it's fine, but it's, it just, it's different. And I, you know, it's, it makes me recognize my own. 
Yeah. So, got it. And as you reflect on that, as you guided, you and Bob got co-guided a Vermont Creamery over the past 33 years, mm-hmm. um, you have had a, a number of roles, right? So just off the top of my head, I'm guessing, you know, daughter, sister, um, mother, wife, CEO, creative director, top cheap cheese maker, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and plenty more that you can probably Dishwasher. Uh, dishwasher. Okay. <laughs> Plenty more that you can say. And I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing that um, some of the time you found yourself to be the only woman in the room. Absolutely. And can you tell me about that? Yeah. So particularly in our industry, in dairy production and in dairy manufacturing, it was predominantly a male industry. That's changing. Um a lot now, but in those days, um, I question whether uh, without Bob having the conversation with bankers, um, whether we would have been able to get loans in the early days. I, d- I rather doubt that. Because of some feeling that they had about gender, the bankers. Sure. Feeling about gender, Bob had, you know, he had all the right um, financial literacy and, you know, he could put the business plan and the balance sheet together. And I'm thinking, well, what's a balance sheet, you know? Right. And, um, you know, at the time, and this is something that I, I, you know, counsel young women, um, is to never be ashamed of the fact that you don't have that literacy. It doesn't, you didn't learn it in school. Maybe you you went to school for something else, um, but always ask lots of questions. Um, if you see acronyms that you don't know, just say, "Hey, what does Kager stand for?" You know, what what are all, what do these things mean? Um, and what that does is um, sort of endears people, I think, to you and to your cause, and it requires people to stop and explain a little bit where, you know, have them meet you where you are. And um, I think that that creates connection that's valuable. Um, you know, to answer the question about gender, um, I can remember many times people would come to the creamery and ask to speak to the owner, <laughs> assuming that I wasn't, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, it was sort of fun to yeah. play, with, play sure. with that a little bit. So, so if you could think back, and um, maybe you think back to your teenage years when you were in high school, or maybe after when you were in college, but knowing what you now know, if you could go back and give your 16-year-old self or 19-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Oh, gosh. I was so unconfident at that age. For one thing, I was young in my class. I went to school um, probably a year earlier than I should have, um, not because I was smart, but because it was convenient for my mother, I think. (laughs) Um, I I understand that. I I get that. Um, And uh, so um, starting out younger as the youngest in your class, I think you're always catching up through um, your childhood years, your teenage years. Um, young adult years. Uh, so my first piece of advice would be just wait a minute, <laughs> you know, get another year under your belt before you jump in. But also um, that embrace what you don't know and everybody's unconfident. And, you know, think about all the times that you were in a room and you had what you thought was a good question or a comment. And you didn't ask it because you were sort of feeling a little bit unconfident or embarrassed. You might think, oh, my gosh, people are going to think this is a stupid question. And then somebody else asks the question, <laughs> and people say, wow, what a great question or what a great comment. And you say, damn, I wish I had asked that question. So not to hesitate, you know, to just to put yourself out there. And um, most of the time it works out. That's I think great. that, you know, I, when you get older, older, I'm, I'm as old as 58, um, 
youth, if you can't have that time back, so you've got to really try to make it. So I see you and Bob, but I think about your um, unique ability. And not only did you strike out on your own and make cheese and, and have the fun of, you know, the creative. Um, you mentioned that you loved cooking and you were able to create this uh, and started off on the, and created a business, an enterprise. But in addition, I observed over the last number of years, you've also built a very competent team. Uh, and so those are sometimes those are two different skill sets that don't always exist in the, in the same person. In your view, have you found it more satisfying to lead or have you found it more satisfying to belong to a team? Always to belong to a team. Because? Because, I mean, collaboration is like my number one leadership philosophy. Um, first of all, having a business partner, you by default, yes. it's collaborative. Um, so we came at the business from different points of view, um, lots of discussion, um, always, you know, spending a lot of time arriving at consensus. Now, sometimes that can be detrimental to a business. It can slow things down. But I think in the case of Lumar Creamery, I think that in the end, um, it was it was great to have the yin and the yang of our partnership. So we start there, and then um, sort of as the parents of the business, you know, like mom and dad. Yeah. And the uh, the we were very nurturing parents of the business. So um, the managers that we hired, that we brought along, were like our kids. Um, and... Um, you know, what you recognize is that these young people are incredibly talented, uh, smart, fast, um, skilled in ways that we can't beat ourselves up about that. But we just didn't go to school at the same time they did. They just learned at rocket speed differently, yeah. different things that were so crucial to the success of the company. So... Um, you know, the moment that you step aside and you say, okay, maybe I don't ha I'm not an executive. I don't execute a strategy, um, but I bring other um, different kind of value to the brand and the mm -hmm. company. Um, I think that's when you really can start to, um, you know, realize success that you never imagined. Yeah, I so agree with you. I think that when you have partners or a group of partners who have very different unique abilities that on the one hand uh, it's actually challenging to communicate because you don't always think the same way or even though you might share the same values you approach issues differently possibly yeah. uh, but on the other hand it's so powerful to be able to have those different points of view it's just it's challenging sometimes to get yeah. there it, and you've done both how would you describe in some ways, you might be tricky to work with. Um, I think I'm tricky to work with for two big reasons. One <laughs> is that I tend to um, let ideas roll around in my head, and I don't articulate them with others um, because I think that they see what I see. Um, and so sometimes it leaves a lot of ambiguity or not a lot of clarity about where we're going. Um, and uh, so I have to continue to remind myself, um, well, to just repeat things over, you know, yes. to say things, say what I'm thinking. Um, and I also, um, I may be too... Um, wanting to please people um, and so not not good at confronting uh, you know personality issues or personnel issues mm -hmm. they um, you know I tend to sort of make excuses for them or you know right. Um, right so I think that we don't we, we you know and I think 
there were probably many times when we could have advanced much more quickly had we just said, you know, this this situation, this person, this department isn't working, and we really need to turn it on its head. You know, right. I, it's so interesting, isn't it? We live in a culture where sometimes I think when we do that, i.e., when we confront this conflict or this ambiguity, and let's say it's a people issue, that sometimes uh, it feels like we're blaming the person. When we're not blaming them at all, I think sometimes when we do that, we're actually setting them free Yes. to go ahead and do what they're really good at. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so, yeah, we live in a culture where it's sort of hard, it's challenging to do that. Yeah. yeah I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Um, the best person I ever worked with was so good because... Well, for me, that would be somebody who uh, is very organized, um, writes things down, keeps track of details does all the things that I'm terrible at doing, you know, so it's a nice um, yin and yang of, of my skills or lack of skills there. So um, so that's great. So you don't, um, so you appreciate those very different skill sets in oh, someone else. Oh my gosh, I am in awe of them. I just, I, I watch people um, go through their day with those skills and I just think, Oh, if only I could do that. Yeah. So, but I try not to beat myself up about it either. So. Right. Because you have very different skills. Yeah. 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 So, again, I'm coming from the point of view, Allison, of knowing what you now know. And I know all of us in, earlier in our careers, we didn't know what we didn't know. Yeah. I didn't. Um, but knowing what you now know, were there a couple of – uh, I'll call them professional failures that you had that you now look back on that you can say, wow, you know, that didn't succeed or wow, that was really a failure. And I'm one, what I'm looking for is learnings, things that you, you failed at and learned from. Yeah, well, certainly um, what Bob and I both failed to do early on in the business is really think about who was going to buy this product and how we were going to communicate that. We just made it. And we thought, well, we've made it. Now we're going to sell it. Yeah. And, you know, from giving it a long, hard-to-pronounce name in another language or a long company name that no one could ever remember, um, I mean, we really were pushing a brand uphill. You know, I just – when I think – you know, that's that's a piece of advice that I give young entrepreneurs to say, take the time – maybe even spend a little money to try to figure, to answer some of these questions of why, this, you know, who, why, yes. um, and, um, and try to be able to say it in, on the elevator. Because if you can't say it yourself, nobody's going to remember it. Um, so, so, you know, I think that um, had we done that early, well, there are two things. Had we done that early on, we may have never created the successful business that we have. Um, one of the things that is very authentic about Vermont Creamery is these bumbling couple of kids, you know, tr trying to make a product and get it to market in a very um, you know, organic and clunky way. You know, it was, it was absolutely nothing slick about what we were doing and never perceived to be uh, dishonest in any way. And that carried with us for years in our, in our brand. It's really, it's, it, that's what we're known for. Um, so, you know, you can look back over 33 years and said, had I only done it this way, something else would have happened, but then maybe it wouldn't. So sometimes I say to people that I have a master's in mistakes uh, because um, when I think back on um, the businesses I've been involved with, I can see some cases I could have made some decisions better for sure. But in other cases, there's been some outright, some spectacular failures. And I think one of the interesting thing about classifying things in successes or failures, I think of them as sort of successes or learnings, is that success frequently psychologically tells you to do more of it, whatever it is. 
you're being successful, do more of this. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't give you any change. All the change in life really comes from failures where mm -hmm. you have a failure and you say, uh oh, better change my behavior. Don't want to do that again. Mm -hmm. And so from failure comes a lot of learning and growing. Can you point to a couple of twists in the road where you've had a couple of those? Well, we certainly, I can think of two examples. Uh, one was a completely botched expansion that we made into our first creamery. Um, we leased a space um, and we were installing a boiler and we bought a lot of dilapidated used equipment um, trying to stretch our dollars, our, our few dollars as far as we could. And uh, the boiler didn't pass the state inspection, and the bank decided they were going to pull the plug on us. We, oh. We'd spent our, um, you know, our loan, and we were out of cash. And so we had to find another banker who was going to help us clean up the mess and uh, sell a portion of the business to friends and family and get back on our feet, which, you know, forced us to um, think about the business in a different way. Um, we had to borrow more money, refinance this mistake, and really start to imagine a business that was going to need to grow. Um, we were going to need to try to do things at scale. You know, scale is relative. In those days it wasn't at scale. But, um, but really think about uh um we were we were in we were in it at that point we were in the drink we were drowning so we thought okay now we really have to think about creating a real business here and i imagine that when you did that that you ended up coming out of the other side of that with a new bank and you mentioned some uh, family and friends stockholders mm -hmm. so you had these other constituencies now also right. who were also invested in your success that's right and it, it takes it to a different level of game, Absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And what, what ended up happening was we were able to build some capacity in our business so that when we did start to grow faster, we were able to meet the demand for the cheese. And um, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how, how we would have done it if we suddenly grew out of a place that was too small from the get-go and then had to start all over again. Right. So um, having having that leap of faith that, well, we might as well go up, we might as well get bigger because we have all this debt and we've signed personally <laughs> to take our houses away. It's only one way out. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I, I think the other uh, example I can think of is of, – of, not, I wouldn't say failure, but um, not not having the um, adequate confidence in the product itself and the value of the product. So, you know, buying goat's milk, a very expensive raw material, paying the right price to the farm for that, converting that into cheese, having a decent enough margin to sustain a business and putting that on the market at a price that's appropriate, but certainly not inexpensive, um, took some gumption, I think, for us to, in a market that didn't exist, right. to have to convey that value. And we, for years, were a little timid about that. And I think that it, um, it kind of put us, it positioned our brand in a place that was kind of lackluster, um, not commodity, but certainly not positioned as the most premium product on the market. And it took us, I would say, probably six to ten years to really get to that point. Once right. we decided that was the only way out. In fairness to you, it could be that... Uh, that the market was maturing yes. at the same time. Yeah. You you were leading the market. I yeah. mean, when you went into the business, how many goat cheese um, people were there in North America? Oh, there were probably four or five others. And how many are there now? Oh, gosh. Um, there are probably 
I don't know, 100, you know. Right, yeah. right. So, um, as I think about your career so far, because we haven't talked about the next chapter, but as I think about your career so far, I, I think I've heard you describe how um, you had sometimes viewed the business as another child. Mm-hmm. And you, you also have raised a family here in Vermont. And um, you've done both very successfully. Do you think that there's a trade-off to be made between being a great parent and a great professional? Or how have you navigated that? Well, certainly when you're in it and doing it, you never feel like you're doing either one of those things particularly well. So you're in an airport and you wish you were home, you know, at your kid's hockey match. Or... um, you're doing something with your kids and you're missing a meeting or you're feeling unprepared when you get to your meeting. You just think, well, it is what I, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, I think that if you were to ask any of our three sons, they would not have lamented the fact that their mother kind of was out to lunch, you know. A little bit all the time, not particularly present. Even when I was physically present, I was thinking about something else. Because I think they are immensely proud of me and um, what uh, we accomplished. And I think that they, growing up in that business, they garnered some pretty amazing insight into... Uh, starting, growing, having a business, um, which they wouldn't give up for anything. Right. Um, so, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, I don't, it, for t- particularly for women, mothers, um, wives, you know, and, and CEOs, it's, uh, it's an ongoing battle and women talk about it with each other all the time. How do you balance and, you know, get the childcare that you need and provide, you know, be the mother that you want to be. So, so as you think about that, and I, I, and as I observe you as a, in all those roles, Mm -hmm. you're a giver and as a giver, giving of yourself, you must get depleted sometimes. Um, how, how do you get refreshed, repleted, as I would say? What are the things that you do? Well, you know, um, gosh, I think that one of the activities that I, when my kids were um, in high school uh, and they were doing sports, I always found that going to one of their games was a great escape for me. It was just a way to be um, focused for that those three periods, <laughs> and um, kind of, you know, get into what they were doing and feeling like I could support them. That was always a great um, source of pleasure to um, to watch them do their sports. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think it's – I probably didn't over the years – do enough to develop my own uh, interests to sort of take care of myself. I think that that's probably, that's not unusual. Right. And I have noticed, though, in the past couple of years, you've been doing quite a bit of traveling around the world. Yeah. And um, is that something that uh, refreshes you, rejuvenates you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are you a reader also? Um, I, I, I've never been a a big reader, but, um, when I do read, I get into a book that I think, wow, I just really should do this more often. You know, it's, um, I'm easily distracted fiction or reading a periodical, um, the magazine, you know, um, looking at the New York times on my laptop or something. I just, um, is there any book you read recently that you would recommend? Um, well, let's see. I'm reading a book now um, called Surviving the Future, and it's about um, the uh, post-market economy and, like, communities and um, how will we maintain the things that sort of make us human, um, play, 
our playfulness, yeah. our, um, you know, those are the things that are sort of I'm, I'm noticing right now because I'm not doing a lot of traveling for business. I feel like my emphasis is my, on much more local activities, a little more introspective, I guess. Great. So um, let me turn to the future. And let me ask you this. If, if you could do anything now or be anything now, what would it be? Well, <laughs> you mean like if I could just be a pilot or something? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, or just, a professional tennis a wand, player. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, gosh, you know, I don't think about things like that. I don't ponder, well, if only I could be this person or be somebody else. It just never really occurred to me. Right. So, um, so let me try this. If, if you could take, now that you, you've uh, moving into a new chapter, meaning you're not uh, probably feeling like you need to be at the business all the time as you were for the past 33 years. Right. So if you could take a significant time out, like I'm um, taking two years and, and learn a new skill, what mm -hmm. would that be? Well, um, I'd like to feel confident about my writing. Um, I think that I have something to say, and I'm not really sure exactly what it is yet, but um, I, if I could be anybody or do anything, I would be disciplined about writing something every day. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know what uh, sort of keeps me from doing that, but... Um, I, f I find it um, very gratifying to when you sort of get into the flow of writing something and feel like you have um, – it's very cathartic for me, you know, to be able to say get something out and kind of codify it in that way. Um, that feels – I feel a great deal of accomplishment. I know what you mean, and I think that – it's so interesting to me. I've studied this a little bit in terms of what motivates creativity in people. And mm -hmm. it strikes me that, unfortunately for me, maybe for you, I can't come up with a pat answer to that. That you meet some writers and hear about some writers who do exactly what you're saying. That um, some very famous writers sit down at 6 o'clock every morning and write till noon. And they insist upon writing something, even if they're not happy with it. Yeah. That they feel like they've put in certain number of words and then uh, you hear about others who do exactly the opposite who say ah, just don't worry about it you know when the, yeah. when it move when it hits when the muse hits you you'll right. know it and, and you'll, you'll do it but down. i have a feeling from you you do have a story you do have things to say you do have a narrative to tell so i'm looking forward to that yeah you know i think that we have a blind spot you know i think entrepreneurs have a bit of a blind spot you don't sometimes it's hard for me to internalize what people say to me or about me or about my contribution to our industry, to our business, to the brand. And I think, well, what are you talking about? You know, I right. don't, I don't get it. You didn't and see I, it that way. Well, I just think I'm not trying to say, Oh no, I didn't do that. You know, like yeah. deny it as if it were nothing, it's not nothing, but I'm not really sure what it is. You know, yeah. I don't know what that thing is that that contribution is. I'm not sure I can articulate that. So, so uh, let's see. How long has it been since we successfully completed the uh, transition transaction together? Has it been six months? March 30th. Okay. Yeah. And so um, since then, you've been doing some transitioning in the business. Mm hmm have you um, yet, because maybe, maybe the answer is no, not yet, but have you yet been able to think about a project or two that excites you that you're wanting to take on that's new outside of the business? Um, Personal or family? or? Well, I think there, there's a couple things that happen. Uh, I think for me, I came to the realization that all the things that, not all of them, but for the most part, things that I loved to do in the business before we closed, uh, before we sold it, I was worried that I would miss those and I would want to continue to do them. And I've done some of them, maybe speaking and, you know, trainings and 
you know, being at some trade shows and things, um, I think that that doesn't really excite me anymore. I really, I mean, I loved it when I was doing it and when I owned the business, but I'm not sure it's really, I'm not getting a lot of um, gratification from that or creativity. It's not fueling anything. As it and once I, did. As it once did. And does that surprise you? No. Okay. Um, because I think it's just, it's natural, you know, um, and so I think you kind of have to have one door closed before the other opens. You kind of have to say, okay, I'm, I did that. I'm done with that. And now I'm ready to think about what the next thing is. In terms of projects, you know, I have um, a great deal of interest in some of the things that our sons are doing. We, we kept uh, the farm, the goat dairy. It, it's a, still a very entrepreneurial activity. It's not profitable yet. And so there, I'm interested in the puzzling through that. Um, with our son Miles and Daryl, and so um, you know that's a, that's sort of getting back to some of the kinds of activities that Bob and I went through in the early days of you know looking at our cost of goods and yeah. saying how are we going to make this work, you know, and that's kind, that's kind of fun. I mean, it's scary, but yeah. it's also fun, and I think that I feel confident that we'll figure it out. Um, but that said, that's his business. It's not mine. So I have to find the right balance of not being intrusive and, um, you know, not sort of living vicariously through his farm, uh, career. So you mentioned your sons and, um, I was thinking that, you know, in some ways the conversations around the dinner table, right. For the past 33 years, which is older than each of them, right. Yeah. Uh, so that has has frequently been around um, your entrepreneurial energy, and not exclusively, but some of the time. Um, what have you tried to teach your sons about the world of work as you were uh, being the co-CEO of Vermont Creamery and also being the mom? Uh, well, what did I teach them? I can tell you what they picked up. Um, <laughs> Okay, they question. are, you know, um, they really understand the value of work. But I also think that one of the things that they have picked up, which maybe is um, can be a hazard, is that they don't know how to turn it off either. So um, when, you know, growing up in a household where work just kind of happened from the minute you got out of bed till you got home, and then, you know, you're you're looking at your computer um, yeah. at night. It's you know, and they're doing homework, but you're you're sort of constantly doing things. Being so uh, sort of obsessive about um, these things, um, they're going to miss a lot of things in life. You know, so um, you know, I'm not going to discourage them from their their endeavors but um you know they too have children so miles has two children right so so what would what would one of your sons have to do in order to make you a bit professionally jealous of them i think that if uh i'll take them one at a time so miles (laughs) who's farming i think um is uh uh a pillar in his community, but as a farmer, as a community member, as a influencer of of things that happen, um, and I I'm jealous and proud of his um, stature in the community locally. Um, that was something that I was never able to really exploit, sort of creating a national brand. Um, Sam is um, someone who um, he always takes the time to help people with something. If there is a car off the road 
or he goes and he pulls them out. If he's if somebody has hay down and they need some, he's always has his antenna up for how do I make things better here? Um, and again, I was either too preoccupied or self-absorbed with my own business that I wasn't really doing that. Jay, who is one of the youngest elected officials in the Vermont State House, he he um, has a great disposition. He's incredibly well-liked. Um, he has an immense curiosity about the world and his constituents. And, uh, you know, he will he will leverage those relationships in great ways. I'm certain of that. And um, I think that they are far and away more self-confident, competent than I was at their age. You know, they just have so, they're so much more self-possessed than I, than I was at well, that time. That's a great answer. And I'd yeah. say, as a mom, you have to declare victory, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I guess. <laughs> so let's pretend um, that we go to sleep tonight. It's November 15th, 2017. We pretend we go to sleep tonight and magically we wake up tomorrow and it's November 16th, 2027, 10 years from today. Wow. And you say to me, Pete, You'll never believe it, but the things that I've been working on the past 10 years are so great. They've been the best 10 years of my life. I say, Allison, what have you been doing? What have you been doing? Um, well, let's see. I have um, I've been playing my piano again. Great. Um, Didn't know that was on the roster. Yeah. That's so um, I have um, continued to ride my bicycle and travel by bicycle. Um, see the world on that bicycle. I have spent, I have a wonderful relationship with my grandkids. Um, they spend a lot of time with us here on this little tilted hillside farm, which we expect to be here yeah. um, in 10 years. I have no... Here in this farm at the end of a dirt road. That's right. Um, at the rabbit track. Um and uh, just uh, uh, I, I see myself continuing to be involved in local um, development projects. Um, I, I, Do you see yourself being involved with new businesses? Probably. Um, do you see yourself being involved with, uh, I don't know, uh, education of entrepreneurs, women um, entrepreneurs? Yeah, we um, – I – I find myself uh, talking with young women entrepreneurs, speaking at some of their gatherings, you know, trying to develop the forums for these women to develop relationships with each other and um, really uh, thrive. Um, I see women business owners uh, or CEOs just continuing to grow. I mean, it's just going to keep happening. Suppose um, there are some listeners who um, want to encourage their daughters to be uh, entrepreneurs. Do you have any advice for them? Uh, well, what I, uh, what I would say to them is um, be humble. Don't Bite off more than you can chew. You know, push yourself. Um, you know, be scared because it's really scary <laughs> to do something, you know, to borrow money. And then you're – and if you're too comfortable, you're not making a difference. You're not doing something new and different. But um, do things incrementally. And I think that what – I've seen that with women business owners um, – sort of taking some baby steps before they make the big jump. That may have to do with um, sort of the responsibility or the custodianship that they have of their children. You know, you sort of, you feel an intense responsibility for these other people that you're taking care of that you don't want to put anything at risk. And I, I sense that with women 
business owners. There, there's a hesitancy to just be radically um, so so confident that they feel like I'm going to turn the world upside down. Um, but I think that the things that they do are powerful. You know, they're deeply meaningful and powerful, and um, uh, have the ability to change can, to change a lot of things in the world. So. So I think sometimes what you're talking about, um, that that um, self-efficacy and that confidence comes also from passion, mm-hmm. from having a, a focus that you feel so strongly about that you are willing to go out and even be risk-seeking, but only in that area where you have that passion, right? right? And, right. and you felt that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got to be sort of singularly focused and... You know, a little reckless, of course, because, you know, market research or any of those things would have told us there's absolutely no market for this. (laughs) Nobody's going to buy this thing that you want to (laughs) make. So so as you reflect, uh, do you have a piece of advice that you think is like, this is the worst piece of advice that people give to would-be entrepreneurs? This is a terrible piece of advice. Have you heard that? Something that you felt that way about? Well, um, one of the things that I find sort of interesting is um, entrepreneurship as an activity wasn't wasn't seemingly a real buzzword when I was getting started. I mean, it wasn't right. like that. We didn't have like serial entrepreneurs, right. people who just say, "Yeah, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And I'm going to do. I'm going to create a business, an activity." And I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to go on to the next thing, and I'm going to sell it. I always found that sort of – I was always thinking, well, how can you not – can you do that and not be passionate about the thing that you are doing? Right. Um, And I remember being on on um, an alumni panel uh, with some – Connecticut College alumni, most of them graduated in the 90s, and they were all very successful entrepreneurs in various, you know, mostly technology um, fields. Um, But they were kind of dispassionate about the things that they were doing. And it was the sport of doing it and then moving on Hmm. that was more interesting to them. And I thought it seemed disingenuous, if you will. I just... So, um, you know, the, the the advice that people want to give you is, well, you're going to grow this business X fold, and then you're going to sell it, or you, you know, it's just the 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 sort of um, mechanics of what happens to business to be giving that advice so early on just seemed not really relevant. Yeah. To what we were trying to accomplish day to day. Yeah, so, especially for you and Bob and your team, I always viewed that the two of you had a business plan that had like. It wasn't short term. It wasn't even long term. It was kind of like infinite term. Yeah. We're just going to just, just we want this going. to be good forever. Yeah. But yeah. I think you have to, in a way, view your business um, that way. You know, run it like you're going to own it forever and make it into the business that you would want to own forever. Yeah. Um, make those important investments uh, no matter what. Um because if you have one foot in the door and one foot out, you're never going to take those steps to really increase value or improve what you've started. Um, yeah, I think it, it brings up a point of advice um, that we were in, in a stage where we didn't own our building. And we were looking at doing some things to our operations that, of course, were going to cost an enormous amount of money. And so it was that sort of, well, do we invest in this location here or do we find another location? And the inertia that it creates is just paralyzing. Um, And so I would advise anybody that if you have some investments that you need to make for what's important for your business in the next year or two, just make them. Like, get to the next level. Don't think you're going to look over, you know, hot uh, piggy or whatever. Jump over the next three years and go straight to the four-year end-all plan um, because the amount of experience you're going to gain by doing it 
in two steps rather than one um, is uh, is invaluable. Um, you know, if you own, if you sell your business, and the next owner has tons of resources, they're going to get you to the year five in one step. But right. I think you just uh, managed to draw a beautiful conclusion <laughs> to our conversation for this morning. Is there a place that if people want to know more about uh, Allison Hooper or Vermont Creamery, they could go to online? Well, they could certainly go to our website, um, which is at vermontcreamery.com. Um, there is um, story, videos, um, blog posts. Great. Um, I don't have my own website. <laughs> and, I, and I would say that uh, so uh, people who are listening to Private Enterprise Value will also be able to find links to uh, Allison's work at Vermont Creamery and other places at privateenterprisevalue.com. I want to thank you so much well, thanks for this for having great me. conversation. I really appreciate it, Allison. Thank you, Pete. Here we go.